Hey there, I'm Rob, one of the pastors here at Central. Before you watch the sermon today, I want to take a moment to personally invite you to join us for our Christmas experiences on December 19th or the 20th. For many years, Central has been known for its celebration of the Christmas season, and this year will be no exception. Please, you're invited. Join us for one of our two services, Saturday the 19th at 7 p.m. or Sunday morning the 20th at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. Now let's get you to that sermon, and we hope to see you here in person this Sunday. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Essential. It's my privilege to uh, continue our series, The Refugee, and we're in week number three of this uh, of this series. Um, uh, just to echo what Rob said, if you were around here yesterday, it truly was amazing. I think there were about 2,000 at least uh, members of the community that were in here, and it was a truly awesome privilege to be here, just to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to, to give hope, life, joy to a number of families who without your generosity wouldn't be able to experience that. So not just to those of you who were here, but to those of you who gave so extensively, thank you so much for that. As I said, we're in week number three. Now last week, Brad left us with this kind of quotation. He said, Joseph was a righteous man because he was both faithful to God and compassionate to Mary, despite his feelings of shame and betrayal. This was from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And so Brad emphasized the whole component there of being a social outcast, a social refugee. And if you think about this, Joseph entered into the refugee-like status of Mary. He didn't have to. There was a private and a public way that he could exonerate himself, but he didn't. He heard the word of God and he obeyed it. And in obeying God, he too became a so social outcast. And that's really where Matthew chapter 1 ends. It's interesting because Matthew chapter 2 picks up and it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's interesting, isn't it? Because Matthew chapter 1 doesn't actually tell us anything about the location of what is going on. Well, today we're going to jump into Luke chapter 2. And as we do that, you'll notice something interesting about the location of the events of Matthew chapter 1. And today I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the impact that movement and migration has on a community and therefore what the nativity actually teaches us about how to respond. Because what we have in our world today is an unprecedented amount of economic migration. And when we read Luke chapter 2 in its context, we realize that's the context here, forced economic migration. That's Luke 
chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, turn there, please, to Luke chapter 2. If you need a Bible, I'd encourage you to have one in whatever format. All you need to do to have a copy of the Scriptures from us is simply raise your hands in the air, and our team of ushers will be delighted to loan you a copy of the Scriptures. Now, as they are being passed out, have a look at this. Some people have said, Craig, what is the definition of a refugee? Well, this is the definition of a refugee from the United Nations Relief Agency. And this is what they say. A refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. A refugee is a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, national, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. That's interesting. Notice that social group. There are social refugees. There are people who have to flee from one country to another one because of a social reason. Now, this definition is of a refugee. If you dig deeper into this, you realize that there are also internal displaced persons. Internally displaced persons are persons who have to flee from where they live to somewhere else, but they don't leave the borders of their home. And because they don't leave the borders of their home country, they're not a refugee, and therefore they don't enjoy the aid or the legal protection that refugees do. These are internally displaced people. Again, many of these factors apply. They have to flee because pressure is being brought on them in one way or another. So just bear this in mind as we go to Luke chapter 2 and we read verses 1 through 5. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now stop there. Notice that word first. This could also be before. This was the census taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria. The parentheses here that Luke inserts are important for historical reasons. Luke is writing to demonstrate the the historical life of of Jesus to a non-Jewish community. So he sets it up in parentheses here. In verse 3, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Notice this, please. Obviously, the events of Matthew chapter 1 last week happened in Nazareth. Matthew 1 doesn't tell us where the events happened. Matthew chapter 2 simply begins after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So we see then that the events in Matthew chapter 1 actually happen in Nazareth. And there we read verse 5, he went there to register with Mary, look at this as well please, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now this is also interesting, where did they marry? Some people think they married in Bethlehem. But it's more than likely that they married in Nazareth. Why then, you ask, does Luke write in verse 5 that they were betrothed? Well, quite simple. The people to whom he is writing didn't have the two-stage marriage process that the Hebrews would have done. And the Christian faith isn't simply a faith of the virgin conception, but of the virgin birth. 
And in order to emphasize this to a non-Jewish environment, a non-Jewish audience, Luke essentially uses the betrothal language for them to realize that they did not consummate the marriage until Jesus was born. Okay, so this is basically the context here. Now, in the way Luke describes this, anyone familiar with the events of the Roman world would realize that Luke is presenting here a contrast. There is a contrast between the extravagance and the exploitation of the empire with the humble origins of the Messiah. That's what's going on. There's a contrast. There is this lavish opulence on the part of the empire that is having a dramatic effect on the living standards and the living conditions of the poor people. And so what we, what we need to take from this as we move forward is to realize that people choose to leave home for numerous reasons. There's intentional decision-making. There's choice, careful preparation. But in Luke chapter 2, it's because circumstances dictate the departure. This is enforced. Enforced economic migration. Now what I want to do is I want to unpack this to make sure we truly understand the extravagance and the exploitation of the empire, that we appreciate these humble origins of the Messiah, but more to the point, I want to contrast what we experience going on in our own locality, and I want to draw lessons from this nativity story, especially in the Bethlehem scenes, and I want to apply that to our very own existence, especially over the next few years, because I believe this nativity speaks very strong words and very definite challenges to us as a community of Holland. Not just Central Wesleyan, but of Holland. Now, what you've noticed then here is forced migration. The deeper you dig into the nativity stories, the more apparent it becomes that there is a lot of displacement. There is a lot of movement. It was this idea that actually triggered the series and the series title. So many months ago, when we were digging into this, Brad and I, we noticed this theme of displacement, this idea of movement culminating in a movement, again, not of their own choice, but forced on them. We came up with the title Refugee, and lo and behold, the political football that is engulfing this nation and the world broke out. If I'd have known that, I would not have called it Refugee, but I didn't have that choice. God did. There's movement here. And I want to help you see this movement because we have this picture of the nativity being so nice and so bright and so joyful and so hopeful and so life-giving. And the reality for Mary and Joseph is anything but that. And in our celebration of Christmas, let's not forget what obedience costs. Just look at the movement with me, okay? An angel comes to Mary. Mary tells Joseph, <laughs> Joseph, you're not going to believe this, but I'm pregnant and I haven't been with a guy. Joseph says, you're right, I don't believe it. Mary does the responsible thing. I think she flees to Elizabeth. She goes to Elizabeth. She walks there. She moves there. An angel visits Joseph. Joseph, what Mary told you is true. Mary returns. Joseph honors his pledge. They were married in Nazareth 
That's what Joseph's family would have been at that point in time. But they didn't consummate the marriage. Now again, this happened in the first service. I see some of you with your phones taking photographs. Just remember all of the slides are online. You'll be able to get all of them, okay? So if you're frantically scribbling, don't worry. You can go online and, and just download these. So then they leave for Bethlehem. They stayed with Joseph's extended family. This is interesting. I would love to be able to do a teaching with you on the word kataluma, which is the word for in. There is this general idea that we have in the nativity, and I remember doing this in elementary school, you know, that Joseph and Mary would go to a motel, you know, this knock on the door, and an innkeeper would open the door, you remember this? And they would say, no room. And our little town of Bethlehem would be singing, and that's a long song, so there were a lot of motels. And they would go from kind of motel to motel, doing the same thing, no room room, no room, no room. Well, the reality is Bethlehem was a small rustic town. If they had one of those public places to stay, that would have been it, one. But this word kataluma, in, is actually used in Luke chapter 22 for the upper room. So what the implication of this is, is that Joseph's family, extended family, were in Bethlehem. They went to the extended family. There was no room in the house because the guest room had already been occupied. And then there was the family room. On the end of the family room, there would have been a stable where the animals would have been. There would have been a manger in that room. Some of this blowing your mind already. What? My Christmas is being destroyed. I thought it was a cave. It's really interesting when you dig into this, all of the implications of it. So they go there. They stay probably with extended family or friends. And then Jesus is born. The shepherds come. They go to Jerusalem to present Jesus. Now, it doesn't end there, does it? They return to Bethlehem. The wise men come to Jerusalem. And then to Bethlehem, the atrocities begin. What atrocities are we talking about? Herod murdering all of the boys under the age of two. The size of Bethlehem would indicate that there were between 10 and 30 infants that would have been murdered. Again, God warns them of this. They get out. We'll unpack more of this, by the way, next week. Brad is going to spend some time unpacking some of the implications of this. That next week being as part of our Christmas experience. And then after a couple of years, again, a little period in time, Herod is gone. His son is ruling. Matthew chapter 3, at 2, I believe it's from verse 18 and following tells us this. Herod's son is on the throne, and then they return to Nazareth. They go to Nazareth rather than Bethlehem. And again, you'll see next week why they do that. So can you see there's a lot of movement in there? I went through this with Joey, my assistant, this week, and I said, Joey, can you read this? She looked at me and she said, I've never understood Christmas like this before. There's a lot of movement in there. There's a lot of displacement in there. That's the price of obedience often. The origins of the Messiah were humble. They were painful. They were sacrificial. And it's all taking place within the context of an extravagant, exploitative Roman Empire. Now, what I want to do is I want to picture this for you, for you to get a feel for it. You see Nazareth right up there in the north of the country. You see Bethlehem. So the first move we know from Matthew 1, Luke 2, is that they go to Bethlehem. Then from there, after Jesus is born, they go to Jerusalem to present Jesus in the temple. They do that. They present gifts as an offering. The offering that they make is a small offering, which indicates their poverty. 
97% of the population of the Roman Empire lived in some degree of poverty. Mary and Joseph did too. The wealth was controlled by 3%. After that, they go back to Bethlehem and then they flee. You all know where they flee to? Egypt. In that moment, our Messiah becomes a refugee. It's so interesting how many Christians fail to understand that this is the origin of the nativity scene. So many of us fail to understand the refugee reality of the Christmas nativity. But make no mistake about it, those outside the church know this only too well. As was emphasized this week in an email we got from a, a young adult who works in a coffee shop not too far from here, attends this church. She's been working in the coffee shop for a couple of years. And uh, as she was just serving some people uh, some coffee, they obviously knew her. And um, they were talking about the refugee situation in the world. And then one of them said, isn't it ironic that these Christians don't appreciate the fact that their own savior was a refugee? When are they going to get it? To which degree she looked and said, oh, our church gets it. In fact, we're doing a series called Refugee right now. She said their eyes were almost big and they could have popped. Well, at least for all of the Christian people we may have annoyed, at least there are some people who are impressed that a church actually was aware of the fact that this is the reality of the nativity. Now, where did they go? Egypt. Why Egypt? I'm going to tell you one reason. Come back to our Christmas experience for the second one. One reason they went to Egypt is simply because Roman control did not extend to Egypt. Egypt. We started this series in Egypt, where God's people became refugees. And what happened to the Egyptian army following them? They were wiped out. Don't you find it ironic that Egypt opened their doors to some Hebrew refugees after everything that had happened to them? See, there's something going on in the text with this. I'll come back next week to find out what. So we kind of see they return then, Luke chapter 2. God speaks to them after they've been in Egypt and says, okay, now is the time to go back. And where do they go? They go to Nazareth. They didn't go to Bethlehem. Matthew tells us why in verse 18. Herod's son is there, and that's the son of a bloodthirsty tyrant. We're not going back there. So where did they choose to go? Nazareth. They choose to face that social ostracization once again because it's the safest place for them to be. And you read the gospel stories, especially in Matthew, you will read time and time again of these claims of Jesus' illegitimacy being made over and over again. Oh, that's Joseph's son. Oh, they all knew about Joseph's son. This is a very different picture of the nativity to what I was familiar with growing up. But this is the context. This is the refugee reality of our Messiah's birth. Now what I want to do for a few moments before I begin to apply this is I want to talk about the exploitation and the extravagance of Rome. I want us to understand what that meant for Mary and Joseph. I want us to feel it. 
Luke chapter 2 has this phrase, a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And with that phrase, Luke is contrasting the extravagance and the exploitation of the empire with the humble origins of the Messiah. He's introducing us to a clash of kingdoms, not just the kingdom of Rome, but the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God, something we looked at in a previous series. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Luke, describes the events of these first three verses like this. But the point Luke is making is clear. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness and significance and vulnerability and the kingdoms of the world. And he introduces us to this clash with this idea of a census. A census is basically a taxation decree. Now, back then, there were a lot of taxes. It's estimated that taxation ran between 50 and 70%, depending on the period. There were grain taxes, taxes on produce, sales tax, temple tax, occupations tax, customs tax, transit tax. A number of commentators believe Matthew, the disciple, the apostle, was actually one who collected transit taxes. There were a lot of taxes. It was heavy. What I want to do is I want to focus on this grain tax. I want you to get a feel for what this was like, how oppressive this was. I'm going to put a quote up there, and we're going to read this uh, quote. And it's from a, a historian from uh, the Emperor Constantine. This was Constantine's historian. And he wrote about the grain tax using these words. Look at this. The census, he says... Census takers appeared everywhere, introduced a tumult wherever they went. The fields were measured clod by clod, every grapevine and fruit tree were counted, every head of livestock of every kind was listed, the exact number of people noted. And in the autonomous cities, the urban and the rural population were herded together until the marketplaces were filled with the collective families. All came within their whole, with their whole band of children and slaves. Everywhere was heard the screaming of those who were being interrogated with torture and beatings. Sons were forced to testify against their fathers, their trustiest slaves, driven to bear witness against their masters and their wives against their husbands. When all the other means had been exhausted, the victims were tortured until they gave evidence against themselves. And when pain had at last conquered, taxable property that did not exist was registered. Neither age nor illness won exemption. The marketplaces rang with lamentations. You get the feeling for this? It was oppressive. It is said that the 250,000 inhabitants in the Roman Empire men, I think it's the military men, actually received the grain that fed 670,000 people, excluding 30% of the empire, which actually were slaves. It is said that Rome, to feed Rome alone in a year, would take between 200,000 and 400,000 tons of grain. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes this. Africa, that is the part of Africa that is controlled by the Roman Empire, gave their annual produce, which feeds the populace of Rome for eight months of the year. You get the picture here? Extravagance, exploitation, oppression. 
I marvel sometimes when the Bible says things like, and when the time was right, God sent his son. It seems that when things are at their worst, that's the time when God likes to show up. So this is that environment. So all of this is this backdrop to those words that Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. And this census forced a poor couple to move from Nazareth all the way over to Bethlehem. There are a number of commentators that ask the question, why would Joseph need to go to Bethlehem? Well, the text fills it in for us that it was to do with his family origin. But the reality is, the implication of this is if Joseph's family are actually in Nazareth, then being in Nazareth means that they haven't got any land. That's not surprising. Because the weight of taxation meant that many people who had land lost it, were given land, and were, it was rented back out to them after the rich had actually purchased it. So the idea here, some commentators say, is that Joseph had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem because his family had very little. And where did they go? They went to a little town of Bethlehem. A town that was ill-prepared for the influx of people that were about to come its way. You see, Bethlehem was a rich town in terms of heritage, but it was a rustic town. It was a small town. And it wasn't prepared for this influx of economic migrants. It's at this point, I think, that I see the scenario that puts Bethlehem and, believe it or not, Holland on the same track. Holland is a small town with a rich heritage. And over the next few years, we're likely to see an influx of people moving for economic reasons. And so, in a sense, we have the parallel there. Bethlehem, small town with a rich heritage, ill-prepared for the influx of economic migrants, of internally displaced persons. And then we have Holland, a small town with a rich heritage, with a lot of opportunities that I believe to be, in many cases, ill-prepared for the influx of internally displaced persons through economic reasons that I believe is about to be upon us. Why do I say that? Research indicates of this area that there are right now 3,400 positions of employment, good positions of employment, available in the Holland area, 3,400. In contrast to that, other research shows that we are between 6,000 and 8,000 homes short. So if somebody comes to Holland for a job, they're going to knock on a door and they're going to be told, sorry, no room. It's in this moment, I think, that we need to just look at the nativity. Look at the impact that the rest of Luke chapter 2 has on the life of Jesus and everyone else. And we need to, I think, start to learn some lessons for this so that if we do 
and I believe we will do, see an influx of economic people, people moving in here for positions of employment, that we will actually not make the same mistakes that were made in the text. Now, what I'm going to do at this point is emphasize the reality. The reality is that we live in a very changing world. Look at this. This is a migration study from 2015. We live, the study says, in an era of unprecedented human mobility. You see, back then, I put the map up there. Do you know how painful it was for someone to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem? Can you imagine Mary sitting on a donkey while she's pregnant, heavily pregnant? All of that has changed. M mobility means it's far easier to move around. Hey, I know that to be true. And it's very easy for me, by the way, because I always start work earlier, and Vipka packs all the dogs and all the cars, you know, and does everything else, and I just move. She's the one that's got the hassle. It's so much easier to move around today. And this mobility basically means that we're seeing places turn over so quickly. Do you know that Chicago, for example, has 21% of its residents actually being from a migrant background, as they call it? 21%. Very similar numbers for Detroit, by the way. One of the leading immigration and migration areas in the world. We live in an era of unprecedented human mobility that has been markedly urban as migrants, both internal and international, move to cities and other urban areas, bringing diversity and connecting communities within and across borders to create new linkages among localities. This calls for a new approach to urban governance and migration policies. Get this, there are an estimated 232 million international migrants and 740 million internal migrants in the world. You see what's going on? People are moving from locality to locality. People are moving into areas. And what's amazing about Holland is the depth of talent that's here. I couldn't believe this when I moved here. How much talent is in this small town? And you know what's happening as a result of that? People are moving in, people are coming in. Great opportunity, economic opportunities await, but we haven't got any room. So what happens if we make room for them? What have we got to be sure of as a church that we do? Because as Brad said last week, it's really easy for a dominant culture that has everything it wants to shut up shop and make sure that nobody else comes in. That's what the dominant culture does. So what do we need to learn from this? I think there are three things that we need to learn. Firstly, I think we need to realize that economic migration adds burdens. It doesn't only relieve them. The very fact that somebody would uproot, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, and move from one place to another one, on the one hand, it actually solves one problem. Thank you, Lord, that I may be able, as a result of this, to put food on the table for my wife and kids. It solves the problem. But it actually adds to other problems. These were problems that Vipka and I weighed out really heavily when we moved with our children, especially with our older boys. And I prayed this through carefully, felt that God was moving us from Tampa up to here. And then we called my children. You may remember the story, my older two boys into, into our bedroom. And we said, okay, guys, Alec, Jonas, we, we need to tell you something. 
And Alex said, Dad, before you do, I was away at this retreat, this camp last week, and while I was there, uh, God spoke to me and told me that a major transition was coming and it was going to be okay. I had to trust him. What do you want to tell me? <laughs> and in that moment, I remember looking at Alec and saying, Alec, if God has given you this special word in a special season, it's for a special reason. It's not going to be as easy as you think. And it's true. One of the strengths of Holland is the strong family networks. Just this morning, an old lady came up to me, introduced me to her son and her grandchildren. What a privilege that is for someone to be able to worship with their, with their, with their sons and their daughters and their grandsons and their granddaughters. What a privilege. But if you've got a family like that, why do you need anyone else? Tight communities, tight family units are often the hardest for anyone on the outside to break into. You don't need anyone else. Churches of this size, why do we need anyone else? We can pretty much run everything just from in here, right? But it's not about us. It's about realizing that economic migration may relieve one problem, but for those people that come in, like Mary and Joseph... It actually adds other burdens. Mary and Joseph, well, what problem would have been relieved because they left Nazareth? Think about Brad's message last week. Social ostracization. They're married by the time they get there. They leave that behind. That problem is gone. But now they've got another one. Where are we going to stay? How long can we stay? Where can we find work? Let me encourage you, if you witness somebody new moving into your street, into your neighborhood, be one of the first people to go around with cookies. You know, we live in a, in a house where you've got to drive up a little lane to get there. Uh, people in our street have been so kind they brought us cookies. Somebody actually repaired our mailbox and put a new one on there. Be that kind of people. Be the kind of people that open your hearts and open your homes because economic migration, it doesn't just relieve problems, it adds burdens to families. And if we're the hands and feet of Jesus and we have open hearts and open homes, we can solve these problems. Secondly, I think the lesson that the Nativity in Luke 2 teaches us is this. Outsiders are usually more welcoming of outsiders. Who was it that welcomed Mary and Joseph? Remember, the innkeeper in the traditional nativity said, no room. And then we think that they go around to the back to a stable. They're in there with all of the animals, okay? And then who came to them? Shepherds. Well, even if they're in the end of a house, the animals are next door. There's a lot of this that is true. And who comes to them? Shepherds. Who are the shepherds? Now, there's a lot of commentators who will say, well, the shepherds were despised. And no, that's latter first century. That isn't true at this point. But it is true they wouldn't have been invited to a Christmas party you would have been, uh, you'd have been hosting. The kind of smell of sheep doesn't go well in your freshly, you know, decorated room. They were, they were kind of on the fringes of society. And the upwardly mobile in, Beth, in Bethlehem certainly wouldn't have invited the shepherds to their Christmas party. So what do we have here? We actually have outsiders welcoming 
outsiders. You know why? Because they know what it feels like. And it's in this moment, what Brad said in week number one is so important. Never forget your heritage. You were once not a people, but now you are a people. You were once an alien, a stranger in a land that was not your own, but now, now you are a people. Now you belong. Never forget your heritage. This idea of outsiders welcoming outsiders was made abundantly clear to me many years ago. And this was the power of the church too. If we actually remember our heritage, that we were not a people, now we are a people, it enables us to develop relationships that cross boundaries, cultures, languages. Many years ago, Vipke and I were ministering in Hamburg, Germany. And I remember looking out one Sunday and it was just in this area here, and I saw two guys sitting next to one another. One of them was a guy called Ali. He was a Cameroonian migrant. He'd left Cameroon, not because he wanted to seek his fortune in Germany, but because he wanted to see his children grow up. You see, Ali had a degenerative eye condition that the Cameroonian government said that we, and we're not able to do anything about this. He researched it and found out that in Germany they could. So he, he basically made his way all the way from Cameroon into Germany and asked the German government to basically operate on his eyes, do surgery on his eyes. They declined. They gave him asylum, declined to do the procedure. Ali was now blind. The irony in this, I just honestly don't get. Why don't you just do the procedure, allow the man to go home? But they didn't. So the guy goes blind and he's allowed to stay. Yeah, for every problem you solve, there's another problem you create, right? It was so moving to me that sometimes, you know, in the church we do the offering and then they would bring the offering plates to the front and then we would pray over the offering. There would be many times on a Sunday especially in certain periods where there would be meal tickets, food tickets, food stamps, you call them, in the offering plate. They would be from Ali. So all he had to give, so he gave it. And then sitting next to Ali was Bill. Bill was an American. He was actually in Hamburg with his family in the NATO headquarters, or NATO, not headquarters, training school in Hamburg at Germany. And he was actually the captain of an American Navy vessel. <laughs> and I thought to myself, where else would you see the captain of an American Navy vessel sitting next to a Cameroonian, blind Cameroonian asylum seeker. Only in the church. But only in the church, when the church never forgets that we were once not a people, but now we are a people. We were once so far from God, but because of this Jesus, we've been brought in. On his last Sunday, I said to Bill, Bill, I'd like you to teach. Would you be willing to do that? This moves me whenever I think about it. He got up in the pulpit. Title of his message, The Power of Love. And he just talked about what that relationship with Ali had demonstrated to him about the love of God. 
Church, never forget what it felt like to be so far away from God, to be so lost, to be so different. Never forget what it's like to be loved and to be welcomed. Because unfortunately, there are so many people in our town who are that disconnected. And if these projections are right, we're going to see an influx of people over the next few years into this town. And you know what we need to be? We need to be the type of people that spot the new people in our neighborhoods and open up our hearts and our homes and just welcome them in. Because that's what Christians do. Because that's what God did for us. Lastly here, the third lesson I, I see from this nativity story in Luke chapter 2. Is there in a clash of kingdoms... The weak and the vulnerable are usually the ones that suffer. It's in Bethlehem, in a place where some problems were solved and some new problems came. It's in Bethlehem where outsiders welcomed these outsiders that wise men came, bringing gifts that freaked a mad tyrant completely led him to go on a killing spree that saw between 10 and 30 young boys murdered. Make no mistake about it, when kingdoms clash, it's always the weak and the vulnerable that suffer. But what's interesting is even through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, God always provides a means of escape. God always gives an opportunity for the strong to defend the weak. That was revealed to me even this week. This is a photo that was shot from just up there and texted to me on Monday evening. This is our auditorium a good 10, 15 minutes before the Holland Public Schools Christmas celebration was about to begin. Some of you may well have, have been here. On that stage, there were children of every kind. I knew they were enjoying it because I read on Facebook, and it must have been a friend of a friend of a friend. You get those in your Facebook wall? Somebody said, I'm sitting at the back here in Central Wesleyan, and I feel like I'm in a movie theater watching a movie. All I need is a piece of popcorn, and I'll be fine. So I just rolled out all the stops, welcomed them in. As we said last week, we can do that because you're so generous. But unbeknownst to everybody who was in here, there was a clash of kingdoms. There was a conflict going on. Some of you may well have heard that on Monday night there was a double homicide in Holland. A crazed man burst into a home, about 6.15 I believe it was, with a gun, murdered a woman, murdered a man, and then later we found out he actually killed himself. Unbeknownst to the, what, 3,000 people in here, on the stage, right here, singing, was a seven-year-old girl whose mother had just been shot. Notification starts to come to Holland Public Schools. And if you're an employee in Holland Public Schools, kudos to you guys. The way you ministered and worked in that situation was a credit to all of you. Unbelievable the way they worked. So the principal is outside and the head of the schools and they're working out what to do because nobody knew. Is this guy going to come in here and actually bring a gun and try and shoot the girl? What's going on? So they worked. But here's what was interesting. 
all of a sudden, notifications start to go on through the, through the room. Our staff are, are just outside. And as some of the teachers are being brought into this, there was an opportunity for our staff to minister to the weak and the vulnerable, to pray for them, to comfort them, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to them. And this continued. More and more people getting text messages. Some of the parents, friends of the woman that's been murdered, actually get this, and they're coming out. Where were our staff? Being the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, here's the point. Let me just say this. I hope that we never, ever experience anything like this again in here. But I'll tell you what I did like. I like the fact that when there was a clash of kingdoms, where was the church? Right there in the middle of it. And I pray to God that we will never experience anything like this in here ever again. But the reality is we are likely to face that out there. Somebody you know is going to be exploited because of the sinful greed or to the murderous intent of someone else. What the nativity story tells us in Luke chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 2 is that God cares for the weak and the vulnerable, that he sent Jesus into this world to destroy the controlling power that leads people to do that in the first place. Just be the hands and feet of Jesus. Recognize that with the coming of the kingdom of God, there is a clash of kingdoms. We are the hands and feet of Jesus designed to bring his peace. So go be that peace. I want to wrap up with, with this verse. I love this verse. In the context of everything I've said, all of the movement, all of the difficulty, all of the oppression, all of the hardship, it is very typical for children, all the research says, for children brought up in those kind of environments to actually grow up socially stunted, emotional issues, a, a number of things. Look at this. This is a young boy who basically, when he was small, was taken into another country, was moved around from here to there to everywhere. Look at this. And the child grew. He became strong. He was filled with wisdom. And look at this. And the grace of God was on him. Why does the grace of God need to be on God? Same question, right? The grace of God was on God because Jesus didn't, didn't come into this world to live like God, but to live like one of us. And if the grace of God can be upon a young, a vulnerable child, can't that same grace be upon every young, vulnerable child in this town and across this world? I believe this is a promise that rings true, not just for Jesus, but for everyone who's weak and vulnerable. And so for that reason, go be the hands and feet of Jesus. Be filled with wisdom. And wherever you go, whatever you do, never forget what it felt like to be far from God. Because if you remember that, you remember that heritage of yours, then you will be an agent for inclusion and an agent for transformation in so many people's lives.
Hey, let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, this nativity story comes to us today in a day of turmoil, in a day of oppression. The refugee crisis in this world is a crisis greater than anything that any of us in this room have ever seen. But God, we thank you that your son Jesus Christ entered into this world to bring your shalom and your peace, peace on earth and goodwill to all people. Father, that's the joy, that's the promise of Christmas. And so Father, where our lives this morning don't reflect that, won't you just break in in a real way? In the lives of those people we know or those people we'll meet this week, won't you just use us? Won't you just fill us with wisdom so that we may witness the grace of God being upon those people that truly need it? Father, we thank you that even though we were once so lost, so far from you, you welcomed us home. You brought us in. You made us a people. You made us a family. God, may we extend that same opportunity to those people we meet this week. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Stand with me. Let's go to God in prayer. And as I said earlier on, we are going to finish this series next week. Uh, Brad, myself, and uh, Pastor Kelly will just be finishing this interspersed with great music uh, that we will have. If you've heard of Stickyard, some of you may well have done, you younger folks, um, they're going to be joining us as well. If you don't know Stickyard, you may want to go look those, uh, th those guys up. It is going to be an awesome weekend. So we invite you to invite someone else. This is going to be a great first step into a community of faith. So that's next Saturday evening at 7 and then next Sunday morning at 10. So please do join us for that. Let me just pray for us all as we leave. Family and friends of Central Wesleyan Church, leave this place today knowing that you're the hands and feet of Jesus. You were once not a people, but now you've been brought near. As you leave, go extend that same privilege to all you meet. Amen. Have a great week, folks. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Saturday or next Sunday.